Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. Today we have a case that may never be officially solved, but many are positive that the killer was never a mystery. Over 70 years ago, a double homicide shook a small town in Illinois. Ever since, that town has been haunted by cover-ups, conspiracy, and restless spirits. Can the truth set this town free, or are they doomed to live among the dead forever? Oregon, Illinois was, and still is, a small Midwest town of only a few thousand people. But it has a long and dark history of murder and corruption. Starting in 1833, when settlers slaughtered the local Native Americans and stole their ancestral land, continuing into a hot spot for bandits and gangsters, unhindered by the handful of local law enforcement. Al Capone even buried a few bodies there. In such a small town, local elections were more of a popularity contest, with the elected officials and police officers having no real training or experience, and oftentimes were actively involved in the criminal enterprises going on there. I, for one, wouldn't be surprised if the town was full to the brim of unhappy ghosts. (laughs) Okay, Pacific Northwest natives, I know once you heard Oregon, you thought this was a local case. So try not to forget this case takes place in Illinois. (laughs) As someone from Oregon, it tripped me up for sure. So tell me more about this mysterious new Oregon you speak of. (laughs) (laughs) Oregon is divided by the Rock River. And back in the 30s and 40s, the river divided more than just the land. The west side of the river was where all the well-off families lived. And the east side was the wrong side of the tracks, so they say. This part of town was so poor, most of the houses had sand floors, earning it the nickname Sandtown. The east side was primarily laborers that worked at the silica plant mining fine-grained quartz sandstone. Clifford Reed was one of these laborers, and on November 15, 1930, his wife Ruth gave birth to their fourth child, a little girl they named Mary Jane. Mary Jane wore hand-me-down clothes and played with her siblings' old and broken toys. But Mary Jane was a happy little girl, like a butterfly was how her mother described her. She was headstrong, independent, and ambitious, but dedicated to helping her family wherever she could. When Mary Jane was nine, her mom gave birth to another baby boy named Warren Lee. The young Mary Jane stepped up to help her mother around the house. She looked after her siblings, especially her new baby brother. She did everything she could to make sure he had a happy childhood and would often take him out for walks, picnics, and take him to church. When Mary Jane wasn't looking after her family, she taught Sunday school every weekend after Mass. She even completed a certificate program at a local Bible college as a teen, much to her family's delight. But in rare, quiet moments to herself, Mary Jane dreamed of another life a life outside of her small town, away from her chaotic household and family responsibilities. Mary Jane secretly hoped to escape to the big city where maybe she could build a career as a department store counter girl. Unfortunately, Mary Jane's mother, Ruth, suffered from severe rheumatoid arthritis, and by the 1940s, the pain had all but incapacitated her. So 15-year-old Mary Jane put her dreams on hold and dropped out of high school to start looking for a job in town. 
Her life doesn't sound dark or abusive, but it does sound like a heavy burden to carry for a child and a teenager. Yeah, it seems like she was loved and happy, but you're right. She had to grow up fast. So did she ever get that counter girl job she was hoping for? (laughs) Unfortunately, no. Mary Jane found a job as a switchboard operator for the DeKalb Ogle Telephone Company from 6 in the evening until 10 at night. It was boring, tedious work, but it kept the family afloat and left her days free to help her mother around the house. She shouldered a lot of responsibility, but she was still a fun-loving teenage girl. Sometimes after work, she would head to the Sten House, a local restaurant, bar, and dance hall not far from her house. The Sten House was a local favorite. Upstairs, a live band played as couples danced the night away down below. Men drank beer and smoked while playing poker and craps in the hidden basement room. For Mary Jane, the stillhouse was an escape that gave her a taste of the big city life that she craved. She was too young to drink, but she could dance, which she did, often. Many of her dance partners were soldiers passing through on their way home from World War II. Mary Jane was a very attractive girl. And at 17 years old, in 1948, she caught the eye of the chief deputy sheriff, Willard Burrett, who everyone called Jiggs. He was 42 years old, but had a reputation for liking younger girls. His wife was only 22, and the rumor around town was that he had previously gotten one of their young babysitters pregnant. Willard had powerful friends throughout the town, and the rumors about him, whether adultery or abusing his wife, never seemed to slow him down. He owned a small cabin on the shores of Rock River, which he called his clubhouse. Although he mostly used it as a fishing retreat, it was believed that he might have brought his girls there from time to time. I don't know what's more disturbing, him being attracted to a 17-year-old girl or his nickname being Jigs. Like, what the hell is that about? (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea where that nickname came from, but it makes him even more creepy. That name came from somewhere, and it sounds very suspect. Let's just call him Willard. (laughs) Okay, deal. It's debated whether Mary Jane actually had a romantic relationship with Willard or if he was more of a stalker. But either way, he didn't want anyone else to have her. But Mary Jane was young, playful, and full of life. Whenever someone struck her fancy on the dance floor at the Stenhouse, she would flirt. Willard would fly into a jealous rage and start a fight with anyone she showed attention to. His unwanted attention was exhausting. Mary Jane had even seen him driving past her house at all hours of the day. One day at work, she met a friendly co-worker named Stanley Skridla. He was a line repairman who worked and lived 25 miles away in Rockford. He was down in Oregon for a job and she helped him test his lines and they hit it off. His shift didn't always bring him down to her area, but when it did, he always stopped by to visit her. Stanley opened up to Mary Jane about his life. He was 28 years old and grew up in a multicultural immigrant neighborhood in Rockford, Illinois, with four siblings. Stanley was a skilled craftsman who liked to work with his hands. After graduation, he worked for four years as a cabinet maker. Eventually, he trained to become a machinist and worked at a shop in Rockford for a year before he decided to join the war in 1943. He spent two years in the Navy overseas, and when he returned home in 1945, the ribbons and medals decorating his military uniform were a testament to his honor and valor on the battlefield. 
But Stanley had seen more than his fair share of death and despair, and he was ready for the quiet life. This Stanley guy doesn't sound like he has bad intentions. And I know the legal age of consent in many states is 17 years old, but why are so many grown men interested in a teenager? That's a little weird to me, but this is the 1940s. A different time, I guess. I dated my fair share of much older men, but never as a teenager. Not so much me. (laughs) But like I said, I see no red flags with him. I just see a large age gap. So after the war, Stanley moved back in with his widowed mother in Rockford. His father had passed away, so the burden of supporting the household fell to him. Stanley settled for the first job he could find. It wasn't his dream, but it paid the bills. Mary Jane found a kindred spirit in Stanley and was fascinated by his stories about the war. She opened up to him in return about her own hopes and dreams and the struggle of putting her own life on hold to help her family. One night, out of the blue, Willard showed up unannounced at Mary Jane's door. He invited her to his clubhouse, and when she refused, he forcefully insisted. She stood her ground and refused to go with him, at which point he slapped her across the face. At work, she broke down and told Stanley all about Willard and the harassment she had to endure. She confessed that she might have to stop going out for a while to avoid him, but Stanley wasn't having any of it. He told her that the following night, June 24th, he would come down and they would go out on the town together. Mary Jane was ecstatic and told him she couldn't wait. They agreed to meet at her office at 10 p.m. once her shift ended. No means no, you creepy old predator. Right? What a creep. He's clearly a man that is not used to being told no. I'm sending all the negative vibes his way. (laughs) At around 10.30, Mary Jane and Stanley arrived at Alexander's Log Cabin Inn, a small bar just east of the Rock River. It was a quiet craftsman-style lounge, nothing like the loud hustle and bustle of the Stenhouse. But Mary Jane wanted to avoid confrontation. Unfortunately, she wasn't that lucky, because already seated at the bar when they walked in was Willard himself. Mary Jane and Stanley stayed at the log cabin inn for about an hour while Willard drank angrily at the end of the bar and watched them. After leaving the bar, they decided there was no point in avoiding the Stenhouse after all, and headed that way for a night of dancing. Mary Jane usually spent hours dancing there, but that night Willard showed up only half an hour after they did. Stanley suggested they get out of there and go somewhere this guy won't follow them. Mary Jane knew just the place. They hopped into Stanley's Buick and Mary Jane led him not far to County Farm Road, frequently used by the locals as a lover's lane. They sat in the car, talking and smoking cigarettes, when suddenly someone ripped open the driver's side door and dragged Stanley out. Stanley held his hands up in surrender, but the assailant proceeded to shoot Stanley five times once in the chest and four times in the genitals. He then dragged Stanley to the side of the road and tossed him in the ditch. He could have left it at that, but this sadistic monster wasn't finished. He doused Stanley's head in gasoline and lit him on fire. The killer forced Mary Jane back into the car and took off in Stanley's Buick, leaving Stanley bleeding and burning on the side of the road. He could have just stopped after the gunshots, like he went the extra mile catching him on fire. Overkill for sure. Someone really hated Stanley, and Mary Jane had to watch it happen. Poor Mary Jane. I know she never anticipated that happening. 
The next morning, the Reed household was in a state of joyful chaos as they prepared for the upcoming wedding of Mary Jane's older brother, Donald. It all turned to panic when they discovered Mary Jane had never come home from her date the night before. They started frantically asking around town, but no one had seen her. It wasn't like her to not come home or at least call to let her parents know where she was. Mary Jane was to be a bridesmaid in her brother's wedding and had really been looking forward to it. Her family knew she wouldn't just disappear so close to the wedding day. Meanwhile, a little after 6 a.m. that morning, a driver headed to work noticed a single brown Oxford shoe laying in the middle of the road. The good Samaritan that he was, he stopped his car to move the shoe out of the road. When he bent down to pick it up, though, he noticed a trail of something leading to the ditch on the side of the road. He was not at all prepared for the horrific sight waiting at the end of that trail of blood. The motionless body laying in the ditch was face down and the head was black and melted like candle wax. He immediately rushed to the nearest payphone and called the police. Two officers arrived on the scene within an hour and started collecting evidence. Chief Deputy Willard, or Jiggs, took the lead on the investigation himself. The sheriffs found five 32 caliber bullet casings and a cigarette butt stained with red lipstick. The body was taken to the coroner and quickly identified as Stanley. The gunshot wounds were deemed the cause of death, but the gasoline poured on his face and upper torso and set on fire post-mortem made this killing seem personal. The gunshots to the genitals also seemed like the attacker wanted to humiliate the victim by mangling his manhood. They found the victim's car less than a quarter mile away, parked across the street from the Sten house. After interviewing witnesses from the bar, they realized that Mary Jane must have been with Stanley when he died and was still missing. Well, killers often insert themselves into the investigation. Or, you know, put themselves in charge of it. It's a form of controlling the situation, but most of them often slip up and throw themselves under the bus. On the morning of June 28, 1948, Clifford and Ruth sat holding each other in their small living room, praying for news about their 17-year-old daughter. Mary Jane had been missing for three days now. The town had organized a massive countywide search as soon as it was discovered that Mary Jane was missing. They had searched the entire area multiple times over the past few days and found not a single trace of Mary Jane. The couple jumped when the ring of the phone broke through their desperate prayers. Clifford and Ruth eagerly answered it, but on the other end was a woman's voice they didn't recognize. She told them she was a local psychic, and she needed to share a chilling vision she had received about Mary Jane's whereabouts. The Reeds were skeptical, but desperate, and decided to hear the woman out. They invited her over for a reading, where she told them that Mary Jane was still alive, but badly hurt. She told them that the man who had abducted her was several years older than Mary Jane and was holding her prisoner in what looked to be a basement or a cellar of some kind. The psychic couldn't tell them any specifics about Mary Jane's location, but promised the family that they would find their daughter soon. Unfortunately, the psychic was right about at least one thing. The very next morning, June 29, 1948, a truck driver from the silica plant pulled over to chat with another driver. When he climbed out of his truck, he smelled something rotten. He looked around in the brush near the road for the source of the smell and discovered the decomposing body of Mary Jane Reed. She was found only feet from the road her father drove to work every single day. 
in an area that had been thoroughly searched multiple times previously. Okay, I'm not going to lie. If my daughter was missing and a psychic called with information pertaining to her still being alive, I'd be listening too. But based on them finding her on the side of the road, the psychic made that call a little too late. I always want to believe that most people have good intentions. Maybe at the time of the vision, Mary Jane was still alive? Maybe. How did they describe the scene when they found her? Her body was laying face down, naked except for her bra and underwear. The clothes she had been wearing when she disappeared were tossed beside her in the weeds. She had red scratches all over her legs and blood caked her stomach and back. She was transported to Fred Horner, the same coroner that examined Stanley's body. Since forensic investigation was still developing in the late 1940s, the coroner's review of Mary Jane's remains was cursory at best. Mary Jane's sister identified the body as her sister by the family heirloom ring on her hand and did not pull back the cover to look at any other part of her body. The coroner made a couple statements to the press that Mary Jane was killed with a single gunshot to the upper left chest, but didn't reveal any other information about her condition. An odd discrepancy came to light with her death certificate, though. First of all, neither Mary Jane or Stanley's death certificates were signed by the coroner. Next, Mary Jane's cause of death was listed as a single gunshot to the back of the head, which contradicted the public statements previously made by the coroner. Weirder still is the fact that the clerk who filled out the death certificates for filing was none other than Chief Deputy Willard's wife. This is starting to sound like everyone was in on covering up for her murderer or any clues that could lead to his identity. Super sketchy. This is exactly why people with a personal connection with a victim should not be allowed to have anything to do with the investigation. Right. They should have given this case to another agency. I would have immediately tried to go above the Oregon PD. It gets worse. Without looking for signs of sexual assault or any real investigation into potential evidence on Mary Jane's body, the sheriff's department started rushing the funeral arrangements themselves. Without consulting the family or allowing time to grieve or think about what their daughter would have wanted for a funeral, the sheriff's department arranged a closed casket funeral to take place on June 30th, the very next morning after her body was discovered. Ruth brought Mary Jane's bridesmaid's dress and some of the white gardenias bought for the wedding to the police station. She asked that Mary Jane be buried in the beautiful dress she had saved up to buy for her brother's wedding and requested the gardenias be arranged in her hair for the funeral. Ruth hoped it would bring her daughter's spirit some happiness. Because the sheriff's department arranged a closed casket funeral, the family placed a framed picture of Mary Jane on the lid so her family could remember her during the service. Nearly a hundred people attended Mary Jane's funeral, even with such short notice. After the ceremony, Ruth headed home and closed all of the curtains. She was convinced that Mary Jane's killer would come for them next. In a constant state of panic, she moved their couch away from the wall and told her youngest son Warren to sleep and play back there hidden out of sight. But the days dragged on and the killer never came for them as she had feared. Something is definitely going on here, and everything is moving too fast, from her missing, the discovery, and the funeral all in the matter of five days. This really pisses me off. What right did the police have to rush a funeral? They buried her less than 24 hours after her body was found. 
How could they even investigate any evidence on her body in that amount of time? It's like the police have no worries that a killer is out there because they have no need to fear him. Sham will tell us more about the investigation into these murders after a short break. Hey Conjurers, this is Sham. I know my voice might sound a little different, but that's because I'm leaving this message through our Anchor app. We decided to add something special to some of our Season 2 episodes that include you. This link will allow you to leave us a review, tell us about your favorite episode, and what you love about the podcast. It's also available through downloading the Anchor app. We want to get to know our followers and where you guys are from. This link will be available on our social media and website. Now, we cannot wait to hear from you guys, but until then, stay vigilant. Now, let's get back to the show. Chief Deputy Willard seemed to have no interest in investigating this case and left all of the work to Deputy Sheriff Joseph Mass. Deputy Joseph believed the murder and the abduction was most likely a crime of passion. The killer's actions appeared vindictive and jealous, so he turned his attention to the couple's past lovers. A deputy in Rockford helped out by interviewing and clearing all four of Stanley's old girlfriends, which left Mary Jane's old flames. Deputy Joseph had heard that Mary Jane had dated around a lot, but two clear suspects stood out on her list of ex-lovers. One of Mary Jane's exes was a 19-year-old Navy veteran who had spent some time in a psychiatric asylum. According to the newspaper reports from this time, this man had been previously dumped by Mary Jane, and the day after the murders, he packed up and moved to Wisconsin. However, the evidence linking him to the crime was insufficient. The ex couldn't be ruled out completely, but it seemed unlikely that he did it. This left Deputy Joseph's own co-worker, Chief Deputy Sheriff Willard Burrett. Mary Jane's relationship with Jiggs was rumored to be a rocky affair, and one she had ended just before the murders. Willard was also known as a hothead and a womanizer, with a rumored history of abuse. Several witnesses interviewed throughout the investigation had mentioned Willard slapping Mary Jane the night before the murders for rejecting his invitation to his cabin. Other witnesses placed Willard at both bars the couple had gone to that fateful night. Even more suspiciously, Chief Deputy Willard reported for duty the morning after the couple disappeared without his service weapon, claiming that he had sold it the day before. Deputy Joseph casually asked Chief Deputy Willard about his connection to the case, and even took a look around Willard's cabin, but nothing was found linking him to the murders. It sounds like Deputy Joseph tried to properly investigate the murder, but he didn't try very hard when the suspect was his fellow cop. By the way, can cops even just sell their service weapons like that? Like, I'm pretty sure that's illegal, sir. (laughs) And Deputy Joseph knew something was up and he should have kept digging. Like, think logically. All the proof is there. So where did the investigation lead? Although Oregon and Rockford County sheriffs had interviewed over 50 witnesses and persons of interest, by July 1st of 1948, it seemed like every single one of their leads hit a dead end. The case went cold in record time, and the people in power in that small Illinois town seemed to put the whole thing behind them without an issue. They investigated for a whole week before giving up? Wow. Right. And in 1960, a new sheriff, Bill Spencer, reopened the case, and he was shocked to learn that most of the documentation was missing. He thought it must have been a mistake. 
Knowing how many witnesses and suspects had been interviewed and how much evidence must have been collected, when he asked the officers that had been around back then, they just shrugged and moved on. He tried to interview people in town that may have seen or heard something from back then, but no one wanted to talk about it. Bill noticed the witnesses seemed scared and some even stated that if they talked, they would be the next victims. By 1963, the case files were almost completely empty. An investigator named Jerry Brooks decided to retrace Sheriff Joseph's steps in hopes of reviving the case. Jerry re-interviewed witnesses and tried to find the missing evidence. But Jerry was also a very close friend of Willard, and he was adamant that Jiggs wasn't the killer. So although Jerry tried to rebuild the case file, his investigation was fundamentally biased. Jerry personally liked the theory that Stanley had a secret gambling debt, and two men from Wisconsin followed him to collect or teach him a lesson, and Mary Jane was just collateral damage. Fifteen years had passed, and Jerry found it difficult to put together a convincing case. Jerry put the rebuilt case file back on the shelf and moved on. It seemed as if this case had just met its final dead end. I will never understand how case files and evidence just disappear all the time. This is a serious flaw with our legal system. Also, why even bother investigating if you go into it with your mind already made up about who did it and who didn't do it? Right. Like, this guy had a personal connection. If they're going to keep an evidence box like we see on TV, at least have some good security measures surrounding it. Right. Mary Jane and Stanley deserved so much more than the half-assed investigations that took place over the years. How long do they have to wait for someone to take their murder seriously? Well, 50 years after Mary Jane and Stanley were murdered, one unlikely investigator came along and revived a long, cold mystery. By the 1990s, the Stenhouse had fallen on hard times. The once-beloved bar was falling apart and bleeding money. A 49-year-old former insurance fraud investigator was looking for a change from the hustle and bustle of the city life. He found the perfect opportunity 60 miles west in Oregon, Illinois. Mike Arians and his wife dove in headfirst and bought the old Stenhouse. The previous employees warned him that that place was haunted, but Mike brushed it off, not believing in such things. In 1998, Mike and his wife remodeled the old bar into a Western saloon-style restaurant and reopened as the Roadhouse. That year also happened to be the 50th anniversary of the Lover's Lane murders, and the local paper ran a story commemorating the case. The article sparked Mike's curiosity, especially when he learned his own bar was the last place the couple had been seen alive. The Roadhouse had some modest success, and Mike became more ingrained in the local community. In 1999, Mike decided to run for mayor and actually won. Almost immediately, longtime residents from Sandtown started coming to him asking him to reopen the Reed and Scridla case. The final straw was when Mary Jane's younger brother Warren, who was six at the time when she was killed, came to Mike himself. With tears streaming down his face, Warren begged Mike to use his power as mayor to finally get justice for Mary Jane. Mike couldn't ignore this request and ordered the case be reopened. The immediate resistance he encountered from his own police force shocked him. Why would they care if the mayor wanted to look into an old case? The mayor is typically the top official overseeing the police. His citizens and the victim's family asked him to look into an old case. 
It's crazy suspicious that the police would push back on their own boss for trying to do the will of the people. They need to be charged just for being so difficult and (laughs) sketchy. I'm guessing he dug into the case anyway. Oh, yeah. And the more he looked into the case, the more angry he got. The investigation had been horribly mismanaged. But even worse, it seemed like there was a perception that Mary Jane was just another disposable person from the poor side of town. Mike channeled that anger into launching his own investigation of this 50-year-old double murder. He hired private detectives, purchased countless books on homicides and criminal justice. He arranged for aerial photos to be taken of the town. He contacted forensic pathologists and even recruited a local reporter to write a book about the case. But this was going to be an uphill battle for Mike. Most of the witnesses were dead, and those who weren't did not want to talk. Warren was the last surviving immediate family member of Mary Jane and was determined to get justice for her. Mary Jane's mother suffered a mental breakdown shortly after the murder and never quite recovered. Warren will never forget the devastation his sister's murder caused his family. Warren was all in with Mike on this investigation, and together they founded the Mary Jane Reed Foundation in order to legally gain access to whatever case files still existed. The sheriff's office wasn't going to make it easy for them, though. When Mike first started putting the pieces together about the old Chief Deputy Willard connection, he went to the sheriff and expressed his suspicions. Mike was shocked to be told casually by the sheriff, and I quote, Everyone knows Jiggs committed these crimes, but keep it hush-hush because there are still too many people alive that could get hurt. The sheriff thought that that would be the end of it, but Mike wasn't going to be put off that easily. Oh my god! The sheriff just flat out admitted that everyone knows Jiggs killed those people, but doesn't care. If Mary Jane and Stanley had been rich, this case would have gone very differently. As sad as that is for Mary Jane, it's still that way today. People are likely to look out for those in their social class over those they deem unworthy. It's disgusting. But at least they had the mayor on their side. When Mike returned with legal representation and a court order for the sheriff to hand over the investigation materials, the sheriff was pissed. He threw the case files at Mike and yelled, If you keep effing around with this, you're going to end up getting us all sued. The case files were sparse and pitiful to say the least. Through sheer determination, Mike was able to hunt down a former sheriff who was related to former Chief Willard by marriage. He requested any case files he may have in his possession. It took three separate visits. Each time, the man produced more original documents related to the case that had not been included in the official sheriff copies. When asked where these case files had been kept, he replied that when he left the office, he stored them in his house and in the trunk of his car. It was discovered that when this former sheriff removed these case files from the official record, the state's attorneys had been looking at Willard as the prime suspect of this murder case. But without these case files and the evidence, they were unable to make a case. Mike had really started making enemies by this time, and he and Warren had both received death threats if they continued to investigate. Mike had arranged to have the case featured on the Travel Channel, but when news got out in town about the show, the producers received threats from the Sheriff's Department and pulled out. A campaign against Mike was launched by the Sheriff's Office to convince anyone he might reach out to that he was just some local nutjob with an obsession. It became harder and harder to make progress, but he refused to give up. Seriously? They aren't even sneaky about the cover-up. 
the state's attorney was getting nosy, so a relative of the suspect just steals all of the case files and it all somehow goes away again. And anyone who tries to look into this case gets threatened into submission. The whole city is screaming guilty and no one is saying anything to shut them down. What else could Mike even do? By 2004, Mike was starting to feel like he had done all he could, but Warren wasn't ready to give up. Mike told Warren the only thing left they could try is to exhume Mary Jane's body and hope to find some DNA or other forensic evidence that wouldn't have been relevant back in the late 1940s. Warren agreed, and they got a court order to exhume her body. Before it could be done, the sheriff's office filed a motion to take authority over any facts that come from the new examination of the victim's body. The sheriff's office plainly stated that any facts discovered would not be released publicly or shared with the Reed family or foundation. Mike wasn't going to stand for that after all of his hard work. After a year of litigation, a judge granted that Warren and Mike were to be present at the exhuming and were to be given all the facts and documentation resulting from the examination. Of course, when the day came in August of 2005, they refused to allow Mike anywhere near the examination, despite the court order. They also refused to hand over pertinent documentation and evidence. After several years of litigation, it became clear why they fought so hard to keep the information out of Mike's hands. Finally, in March of 2009, Mike and Warren received what they believed to be a complete file, but suspiciously the recordings of the examination were altered and sections were permanently deleted. The last 27 minutes of audio had been scrubbed from the videotape of the autopsy, and the sheriff's department gave no explanation. The missing 27 minutes were never found, and the timing seemed awfully convenient. The audio cuts out right when the sheriff department in the coroner started arguing about the skull. This is out of control. The victim's family ordered the exhumation, and the sheriff's office is like, okay, but you don't get to know what we find. Seriously? The law enforcement in that town can't be trusted with any evidence. This is no longer the 40s. It is 2005 and no one is calling out the obvious. Clearly they found something weird about that body. If they felt they needed to remove nearly half an hour of the examination video, what did they find? The first thing they noticed when they opened the casket was that the body was buried inside of a medical examiner's body bag, which is highly unusual. Next, they found the bridesmaid dress she was supposed to be buried in wadded up with some newspaper clippings and stuffed inside the casket as an afterthought. Without opening the body bag, they sent the entire body to a facility with the capabilities to x-ray the body within the bag. Once the body was returned, they opened the bag and began the examination. The body was relatively well-preserved for being so old, except the head, which was a fully decomposed clean skull. It was clear that the head had at some point been decapitated from the body, but oddly there were no knife marks on the neck or skull bones. The x-rays supported the original coroner's statement about Mary Jane being shot in the chest, but the skull showed a single gunshot to the face. The unsigned death certificate had stated a gunshot to the back of the head. The discrepancies continued to pile up. There were random nails in the body bag with Mary Jane, seemingly pushed into the skin of her legs, but it's impossible to know if that was intentional or if they simply pushed in due to the weight of the body. And then there was the severed head. The original death certificate never mentioned anything about the body being decapitated. 
Mike began to wonder if the missing audio had been erased intentionally. And he also started to wonder if the county had withheld the x-rays and the videotape because they had something to hide. Maybe the skull had a secret of its own. Maybe it didn't even belong to Mary Jane after all. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, the lack of respect they showed Mary Jane when they buried her is appalling. I mean, they rushed her body into the ground, but they couldn't be bothered to even remove her from the body bag? Did the first autopsy even take place? Where the hell did the nails come from? Are they evidence or random trash thrown in with the body? And what the hell is going on with the skull? Honestly, the whole thing is a hot mess in my opinion. It sounds like someone opened up her casket before she was buried and just disrespected the hell out of her lifeless body. Or just tossed her in there without the assistance of a mortician. Exactly. A professional would never have left her that way. There is so much more investigating needed in regards to this body. I'm guessing the super helpful sheriff's office wasn't interested. The sheriff's department contacted Warren and asked where he wanted the body cremated. He told them he absolutely did not want her cremated and he wanted the bones returned to him. The sheriff's office replied, there is no way in hell we are giving you this body. Mike and Warren went back to court and were awarded the rights to the bones. They reburied the body that had been confirmed to be Mary Jane and kept the skull and vertebrae that were suspiciously different than the rest of the body. In 2007, they took the skull to Dr. Linda Kleppinger, a professor in forensic anthropology at the University of Illinois. She conducted an extensive study of the skull and several vertebrae and concluded they did not match with the remainder of Mary Jane's bones. According to Dr. Linda's report, the skull belonged to another person similar to age in Mary Jane, who had likely died from a gunshot wound to the head. However, she concluded that this mystery person had been shot in the face, not the back of the head, and were likely of Asian descent. It was the first new clue the case had seen in nearly 60 years, and Mike was certain it would lead him to the truth. Armed with this shocking revelation, Mike approached Stephen Skridla, Stanley's nephew, and proposed exhuming Stanley's body as well. Stephen had never met his uncle and had always been bothered by the lack of closure his family received. He agreed to let Mike exhume the body and almost immediately started receiving threats from the sheriff department. That didn't deter him, though. If anything, it made him more curious of what they might find. In May of 2015, Stanley's body was exhumed and they discovered two bullet slugs and a 32 caliber handgun in the casket with Stanley. The bullets and the gun were turned over to the authorities in 2015, but nothing came from it. Oh my god, the murder weapon is in one of the victim's coffins? That is bold. And where the hell is Mary Jane's head? This is insane! They need to stop giving evidence to the authorities that are actively trying to cover it up. Right. There's no reason for Oregon PD to know anything about this case moving forward. They shouldn't be able to keep a cold case for this long. Mike was a former insurance fraud investigator turned small town mayor and restaurant owner, and he has single-handedly blown the cold case wide open. Despite all of the obstacles thrown at him and the destruction of his reputation, what he has done is super impressive. It's very impressive. Somebody needs to give this man a job. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, the investigation was stalled. But Mike is still so hopeful that the murder will one day be solved. Mary Jane's head may still be out there somewhere waiting to be found. 
In fact, the Mary Jane Reed Foundation has offered up to $25,000 for the return of Mary Jane's head. They feel after all this time, someone may have come across the skull in the possessions of a dead relative or something. Mike has dedicated over 20 years and more than $250,000 of his own money to solving this crime. While justice and bringing the family peace is a big motivator, he also has a more direct connection to the murdered couple. After all these years, he has become a believer and can no longer deny that his restaurant is haunted. He first began to notice that the tavern would sometimes get icy cold, even when the air conditioning was off, and the jukebox would blaze to life on its own. Then plates and pans would crash to the floor seemingly on their own. He even has a woman who walks in, sits at the bar for a few minutes, and then disappears without ever saying a word. Mike told a reporter a few years ago, I don't like the word haunted. That's not how I perceive the energy here. There's a presence at the roadhouse that is very determined, and I'm compelled by that compassion. I love how accepting he is of the ghosts at his restaurant. (laughs) He's dedicated so much to this investigation, trying to get justice. I'm sure the ghosts appreciate that. Yeah, I can't help but think Mike felt obligated to revive this case. Maybe the more time he was in their presence, the more he became obsessed with finding the truth. I think that's very likely. He does seem like a man obsessed. Eventually, the roadhouse became a kind of shrine to Mary Jane's ghost. Her photos cover the walls alongside newspaper clippings about the case. On the second floor balcony, a mannequin dressed like her overlooks the bar. Mike regularly holds seances and paranormal tours of the roadhouse in an effort to contact Mary Jane. Some try to say that all of his efforts are simply to bring in more business, but Mike adamantly denies that as the motive for his investigation. He says that in fact the haunted aspect of his restaurant has hurt his business, but he will never stop trying to fight for justice for Mary Jane and Stanley. So Steph, this case was way more intense than I expected it to be. All I knew about this case was a couple that got murdered in their car at Lover's Lane and the case was unsolved. Sham, this case was so frustrating to research. All of the media articles were so basic and only reporting what the law enforcement wanted reported. I had to wade through mountains of court transcripts, recorded interviews, forensic reports, autopsy records, and other legal documents released to the public in order to find any serious information at all. This cover-up was deep, and without Mike, it would have stayed that way. Well, shout out to you, girl, for putting in the work on this case. Some cases are so straightforward, and we can get them done in a day, but others may take weeks of researching and throwing us for a loop during the process. (laughs) Are Mary Jane and Stanley still haunting the last bar they visited that horrible night? Have generations of police officers conspired to cover up the heinous act of one of their own? Many connected to this case say yes and truly believe that until Mary Jane and Stanley have true justice, their families and the town of Oregon, Illinois will never be free. At the very least, there are still so many unanswered questions. If you would like to contribute to this investigation, you can donate services or funds to the cause by emailing the Mary Jane Reed Foundation at theroadhouse at ourhouse.org. Anyone with any further knowledge or information about this case that could help resolve the case or simply give accuracy to the movie or book, please call 1-888-290-0076. To view images, information, and sources from this case, 
visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. If you like our podcast, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even better, leave us a voicemail directly, which just might get featured on the show. You can find the link on our website. Steph, what is our Conjure Tip of the Week? Today we have the stone Lepidolite. This stone is one of the best crystals for grief because it helps us through difficult times by revealing any positive outcomes that could come out of a loss, such as family members reuniting or a new outlook on life. It gives us a sense of wholeness in the midst of such great loss so that we can move through the stages of grief with less suffering. I think this would be a beautiful stone to place near someone's bed, desk, or have them carry around as they go through the grieving process. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.